This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. I'm Dr. Shane. Thank you so much for tuning in. A big thank you to the team from Radiotherapy for bringing us through to 11 and doing that great promo of Professor Sharon Lewin. She will be in the studio in a few minutes. But in the studio with me now is we have Dr. Lauren, and this is the American one. <laughs> yes. We've got two of them now. It's confusing. How are you? Good, thank you. How are you? I'm good. And Dr. Laura? Hi, Shane. Good to have you back. Dr. Ray, you've just come back from a trip and you're... Back home. I am. All, all back. All good. All, almost in the routine. Almost, almost in the routine. Almost in the jet lag, but yeah. Sounds good. Now, we have a number of guests for you today, folks, and we're going to switch the show around a little bit to make sure we get the most out of them. We're going to just bleed them dry as best we can. And in the studio, first up, is Dr. Michelle Hall. She's a postdoctoral research fellow in the Center for Health, Exercise and Sports Medicine in the Department of Physiotherapy at the University of Melbourne. Did I miss anything, Michelle? You got it all. <laughs> now you work. Uh, you were actually in a similar area to Dr. Lauren, actually, in terms of knee osteoarthritis and so forth. And your work principally is around how some of that develops and and so forth. So give us just a bit of a, an overview of what you're focused on. Yes. Uh, first of all, I'd like to thank you for having me here. You're it's welcome. a great pleasure. Um, my research so far has really focused on mechanisms of exercise. Exercise, um, and we're trying to figure out if exercise can sort of prevent the role of prevention in osteoarthritis and also in treatment. Mm. And, and throughout the body, or is it focused on the, the knees in particular? Or? The knees in particular. And, and what what causes this? I mean, I, I you know I wake up some mornings and yeah, you know, I'm getting older, and the knees there's a little bit of a yeah, you know, I don't Do, know. Doesn't something. sound too good. No, it doesn't sound too good. <laughs> but you know, I still have full function. I mean, what, I mean, what's causing? Osteoarthritis, and what is osteoarthritis as well? Yeah, um, osteoarthritis, first of all, is a d- typically considered a degeneration joint. Um, it's caused acutely sometimes by a previous knee injury, mm-hmm. so that is a high risk for developing osteoarthritis later on in life, and um, being overweight as well. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, women are also at higher risk to develop osteoarthritis than as compared to men. Okay. And, and arth- I mean, arthritis is an inflammatory condition generally. Is that, is that what we're talking about here or is this something different? Yes, no. Um, traditionally, it's been thought as a wear and tear sort of condition mm-hmm. of the joint, um, but it's not so much so. It really is sort of inflammation in there too um, where we've got sort of what we think of as a mechanical disease embedded with biological processes as well. So a friend of mine years ago said to me, you're born with a certain number of heartbeats and once you use them up, that's it, right? Which I'm not sure I subscribe <laughs> to that logic. Um, but with, with things like the knees, I mean, is is that kind of true? I mean, if we do too much running on heart, you know, you see a lot of people running on concrete these days. It's mm-hmm. a very hard surface. Mm-hmm. Are we just really leading ourselves into these conditions later in life? I don't believe that's the case. I don't. We definitely don't have evidence to, to suggest that is the case. For some people, yes, they may experience that, but um, in the longer term, absolutely not. We we strongly encourage people to get out there and do some form of exercise, whether it be jogging or go for a walk, mm. even so on hard surfaces. Now, now, in terms of like, so you have people who have treatment for these conditions, things like um, I know Dr. Laura's work in particular focuses on knee reconstructions and all that sort. To the save stuff. them going to Dr. Laura. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but you know, sooner or later, you've, you've got to you've got to recover. You know, so I mean, what what's the scenario there with t- in terms of if you've had surgery of that type, and then you're looking at the recovery and you want to avoid osteoarthritis? I mean, there's a lot of myths out there, aren't there, around how you go about that? Yes, indeed. Um, 
So just because you've had a knee injury doesn't necessarily say that you will have big or develop osteoarthritis mm-hmm. later on in life. Um, yeah. Is, is, is it? Um, do, do, do you find though that the is there any correlation? I suppose between people who've had these severe injuries and osteoarthritis? I mean, Definitely but, so. There's a higher risk. Yeah. About, they would say about 50% of those people who do rupture and a ligament in the knee, the yep. anterior cruciate ligament, will develop some sort of um, degeneration in the joint later. Yeah. So uh, I, I'm curious about the exercise part. So um, you, uh, I think uh, if people have osteoarthritis or they're trying to enjoy, uh, um, avoid it, I guess, I, I guess there's two things there. There's one... When one is closer to Dr. Shane's age, Jeez. the word old might be used, but or or, or middle aged oh. versus. So I guess one of these things about um, things that happen as we degenerate is about onset compared to how old we are. So are you more interested in when people are in their seventies and might have osteoarthritis, or is this about somebody in in middle age? Wow, <laughs> in their prime. Sure. Yeah. Um, so, where, where's, what's, what's the age bracket you're looking at? Because then I'll ask about exercise. Okay. Um, uh, specifically, right now, I'm looking at exercise as a treatment for patients who already have been diagnosed with osteoarthritis. Mm. So, they're typically in their 60s. So, right. a little bit older, Dr. Shane. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Damn, damn. <laughs> Can I ask what sort of exercise? Yeah, no, great question. Um, so, Particularly, we feel strengthening of the quadricep muscles is um, really effective. Um, we have a lot to go or a lot to learn in terms of different types of exercise that might strengthen in those muscles. Um, yeah. Mm. So it seems to me, I mean, with, with all these things, I know I, I did an ankle injury, you know, about a year ago. And when I saw my physio, I mean, she basically said to me, don't worry about the ankle, worry about all the muscles around the foot that take strain off that that location. So she gave me all these weird, very painful exercises <laughs> to strengthen my calf muscles and things like this. And I was thinking, what the? But it, it seems as though that's that's the, the the way to go about this, isn't it? To strengthen everything around the knee itself? Yes. And indeed, there's studies out there to show that strengthening the hip muscles can also improve patients' symptoms with knee osteoarthritis. Yeah. Um, so it's about optimizing the function of the muscles that we have for, for mm. movement. And, and how do you encourage people, you know, yeah. because this, it, it seems to me as though, you know, when you've had an injury, the last thing you want to do is listen to someone who says go and exercise, go and exercise. when it's sore <laughs> yeah yeah i mean how do you how do you go about encouraging people to do that i think it's really important to sort of educate the benefits of exercise you know exercise is associated with very few adverse effects yep and um, you know typically you'll get maybe a peak and increase in pain over the subsequent two days yeah but generally speaking it will subside yeah and, and then you're better off. Yes. yes yeah. yeah, over the longer term yeah and, and is there i mean is there clear data you, you can use sort of use to show people that because that's something that you know, you, your gym junkies will tell you that, but people who don't do that sort of work all the time will be, you know, they, they feel exhausted, they feel in pain. It's very difficult to push through those few days. Sure, sure. But no, there absolutely is hard evidence to say that exercising, mm. um, but you must respect, obviously, you know, if you're feeling acute levels of pain um, to to back off, you yeah. know, or to variate the exercise. And your physiotherapist can help you with that. Yeah, so the message is get out there and, and keep moving. Yes, please. That's what <laughs> uncle, uncle of mine, who's much older than me, by the way, um, he just keeps moving. He just keeps moving. He's, he's senior now, but he keeps moving. Michelle, thanks so much for coming and chatting to us. Um, good good luck with this because I think um, the more we get people around this mindset yes. of, of exercise and moving, uh, I know my brother hurt his back last year and he was told by one doctor just lay down and stay there for a few days. And I'm like, get your butt moving. You know, I don't care how much it hurts. Get up and walk. Just do something simple. But the, the 
emotion seems to help us heal. That's right, isn't it? That's right. Mm. Michelle Hall, good to chat to you, um, and we'll keep keep on top of this. I think I'm sure Dr. Lauren will keep us up to date as to what to do about knees. <laughs> I will. Thanks so much for coming in. Michelle Hall is a postdoctoral research fellow in the Centre for Health, Exercise and Sports Medicine in the Department of Physiotherapy at the University of Melbourne. We're going to take a short break, folks, and we'll be back in just a moment. We'll be talking to the director of the Doherty Institute about immunology. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR-FM in Melbourne, Australia. Uh, you are listening to 3RRR, folks. I'm Dr Shane. In the studio with us now is Professor Sharon Lewin. She is the director of the Doherty Institute, which is a nice shiny building, which is on Royal Parade. Sharon, welcome back to Triple R. You've been on a few times with us before. Yeah, great to be back. Thanks, Shane. Now, you're here because, of course, the day of immunology is approaching us fast, and this is an exciting time. We had some guests on last week talking about uh, all the things that immunology does for us, and we thought we'd have you in as well. First of all, when is the day? Is it the 27th? Is that or it's coming up this week? I think it's it? Friday. Friday, which yep. I think is the 28th. 28th, actually, yep. yeah. Yep. And um, we're we're holding a big event at the Doherty actually on um, on pandemic uh, responses and mm-hmm. uh, with talks on some of the three biggest and most important infectious diseases, which include influenza, dengue and HIV. And we'll be talking about why those diseases are so important and why immunology plays such an important role in us tackling those diseases. All right, we're going to have to get a bit of a preview. So tell with, with these three diseases, I mean, these are quite different. I mean, they're transmitted in very different ways. They're tackled in very different ways. Can you give us a quick rundown of the three and how they're different and what we're doing? Yeah, um, so the, th- most, the, most, um, the main feature that links the three together is that they're all viruses mm-hmm. so um the body responds to viruses needs the immune system you know big time to clear viruses and often uses similar pathways to clear the virus um the with some of those viruses we use antiviral drugs so for example hiv the main approach is to use antiviral drugs with um, we also have antiviral drugs for flu we don't have any antivirals for dengue for all of those viruses we need a vaccine we have a reasonably good vaccine for flu Mm. don't yet have a good vaccine for dengue or hiv so there's quite a few different parallels i think one other big difference is that hiv is a lifelong persistent virus while the others generally are cleared but i think um, one of the great things about say an institute like the doherty is that you have all of those people working on different infections uh, but yet there are common threads of how the immune response responds to them so we can all learn from each other and not to be too macabre about this but but how do these three viruses compare in terms of their impact, both in terms of lives and just knocking people out of out of living normal lives as well as as, as death itself? Yeah. Um. So on the uh, league table of the most important infectious mm. diseases, and there are different league tables around. The WHO, the World Health Organization, for example, just put out their big league table. I would say those three sit in the top ten, definitely. Right. Um, and uh, uh, they pose different challenges, but they're, uh, you know, we also know malaria is an incredibly important global infectious disease, TB, but certainly up there, HIV, mm. influenza, dengue. Why are they important? Well, um, HIV still leads to a million deaths um, a year from AIDS and two million new infections and huge cost to the health system because people need lifelong treatment. Um, influenza never goes away. It comes around every single year and we're always worried about a pandemic. So that needs um, a lot of preparation every year. Interestingly, uh, flu changes its appearance. So we need a new vaccine. So enormous amounts of effort goes into mm. tracking flu viruses and the vaccine is not 
100% is way, way nowhere near 100% effective. And then dengue, um, dengue waxes and wanes, but over the last few years we've seen massive amounts of dengue, particularly in our region, the Asia-Pacific region, and actually can also cause death in a, in a I, subset I mean, of people. I, I think people are probably less familiar with dengue. What, what are the symptoms and so forth of dengue compared to flu? Yeah, so dengue um, characteristically gives you um, severe back pain, fever, headache and rash and, and usually is self-limited and takes about, you know, five to seven days to get over mm-hmm. it. Um, what is really uh, about worrying about dengue is that if you get it a second time and you get it from a different strain of dengue, you can get a very severe form of dengue, which has a very high mortality rate. Right. So um, dengue also is transmitted by the same mosquito that Zika and other infectious diseases are transmitted. So these ve- what we call vector-borne or mosquito-borne diseases are really a big worry now because their um, their uh, region of which they affect is changing as mosquito mm, populations mm. change with climate change with travel we've saw that you know recently with zika mm. now i can't let you go out of the studio today without having a quick chat about hiv because the last time we were here i remember something vague about you telling us how good it was at hiding from us in terms of our our attempts to go after it where, where are we it was a couple of years ago we spoke where are we with hunting it down now and actually killing it off for good in a person so yeah it's still hiding um it hides in people that are on treatment very very well and um it hides inside a particular type of immune cell a t-cell or a resting t-cell and i think perhaps over the last two years that we've spoken when we last spoke we know a lot more about where it hides it doesn't it hides in lots of different types of t-cells something that i know mm-hmm. is close to someone's heart sitting here mm-hmm. um and so it's much more complicated than we originally thought We know that we can wake it up from hiding, um, but perhaps not in every single spot. And I think what has really changed over the last two years and very relevant to day of immunology is that we probably need more than just to wake it up. We need to um, wake, you know, sort of re-energise your immune system to recognise that cell and get rid of it. So immunology, once again, is playing a key part here. Um, Mm. This is in eradicating HIV permanently, meaning finding a cure, still also a very important part of finding a vaccine as well. Mm. So um, I, I was a little curious. You used the word, I think, pandemic about two or three times already. And and so I'm sitting here with a sore arm because I got my flu shot on Friday. I felt very <laughs> well proud done. of myself. Um, <laughs> and, and I was just thinking about the context of, you know, flu is running around, but it's not a a pandemic right now. And I was thinking about, for example, the prevalence of the uptake of the flu shot. Australia is doing okay, but if we actually had a large outbreak of flu or a pandemic or, or, or dengue, how prepared are we in Australia where I get the flu shot, the coworker next to me doesn't. I mean, in our response times, how are how are how is Australia situated when you have institutes like the Doherty, which is probably one of the largest concentrations of of experts in in the area of immunology and, and viral infection in Australia? How are we situated to to deal with that type of? Yes, your question raises a lot of um, uh, interesting points and issues. So just um, just going back a bit, 
um, we think about flu as being seasonal or pandemic. So seasonal flu means it comes around every winter. We know um, people are going to get affected. Sometimes it's more severe, it's less severe. We know the vaccine will work in about 70% of people. Um, and that's what's called seasonal flu. And the reason why it's not dramatically different every year is because most people have some pre-existing recognition of that type of flu. The pandemic is when we get a totally new strain of flu that most that no one has any pre-existing recognition of. And when that happens, the um, infection can spread very rapidly throughout populations. And so we have had pandemics at specific key, you know, um, times over, the most famous one's the 1918 mm -hmm. Spanish flu pandemic where this new strain of flu came in and no one had any immunity to it and it can cause massive amounts of disease and death. And um, we're not immune from a no new pandemic. I mean, we can't, con what we do each year is we monitor and people at the Doherty that we have some, a centre called the WHO Collaborating Centre on um, research in influenza and it basically screens all the circulating strains and informs a, a sort of global group on how to develop a vaccine. Now, when a pandemic comes, we need a totally different, we have a totally different approach because you have to vax, you actually have to vaccinate a very large number of people very quickly. You have to stop transmission by either quarantine or treatment with antiviral. So most countries have a pandemic influenza plan, which we have as well. And in fact, it was tested in 2009. Some of you might remember swine mm. flu or H1N1. Yeah, no, I was sitting at a, an airport lounge in L.A., when that broke out, right. trying to get as far away from everyone as I could. Yeah, so that was well, that was April 2009, yeah, and yeah. it was it the was first April. cases yeah. were in Mexico, yeah. and the second sort of bout of cases were actually in Australia because yeah. um, April um, is the end of the flu season in the US. They're yeah. heading into summer. It's the beginning of the flu season for us. So just getting back to your question, um, there's a very elaborate plan of what we call pandemic planning for a for a pandemic such as flu. But the other thing we have to think about in Australia and every country is thinking about it is when we get a virus or a new infection that we have not thought about or don't know anything about its transmission and um, that happened of course in HIV in the early 80s it happened a little bit recently with Zika because we knew mm. a little bit about Zika um, but it suddenly looked very different in that outbreak in Brazil where we were seeing babies with small brains or what's called microcephaly that had never been described before so it triggers you have to have a whole lot of research basically to understand how it's transmitted what how it's causing disease, what interventions can happen. So we have in, in Australia, we do have a pandemic plan for influenza and there's also a, a plan for an unknown infectious disease. And there's a lot of work happening all the time. And actually it's quite important because most of that work is done by our, our governments, so departments of health in all of our states, together with the Commonwealth Department of Health, prepare these plans but we've never had a lot of re we've had a lot of people doing research in pandemic preparedness but just last year the national health and medical research council the nhmrc um put out a call for a specific 
sort of set what they call a centre for research excellence, particularly in research for an emergency response to infectious disease. Mm. And um, we were actually successful in getting that CRE, which um, we lead from the Doherty, but involves about 20 institutions across Australia looking at some of these issues, you know, um, the public health issues, the ethics issues. In um, H1N1, Indigenous populations and pregnant women were you know, had much more severe disease at the time. So how do we introduce those plans in remote communities? So there's just a lot mm. of different logistics to think of and there's a lot of scientific issues to think of as well. Sharon, whenever we hear about these things, one of the, one of the things I find fa fascinating, I guess, from an ecological point of view and just what, what's going on around the globe is why these viruses mutate in certain ways. I mean, when, when you look at um, crops being destroyed by locusts and so forth, there's always a response to an imbalance that humans have created, and it tends to, you know, it tends to hit whereas monocultures and so forth. Do we have much of an idea of why something like flu keeps evolving each year and why, for example, it's not getting that much better? Yeah, well, I think... Um you know, just in evolution, we've all we've always um, evolved together with organisms mm, in different mm. ways, um, and you can look at evidence of that from uh, organisms that have been around for a very long time, and how our immune system is adapt adapts and leads to survival. But what's different in the last you know, century, I guess, is all the interventions that are man-made. So travel, for example, mm. um, is no doubt with HIV, there were transmissions of an HIV-related virus from monkey to human probably in, the 19, probably in the 1930s, and there were sporadic cases of HIV over that period, but it probably only reached its global... Out, um, numbers because of travel. So mm. suddenly there was a mechanism of viruses getting on planes inside people mm. and moving into other countries. And I think the same thing you can say for in the last few decades um, is around mosquito, the distribution of mosquito populations. Travel is still really important. The Zika outbreak in Brazil was thought to have started from strains of Zika that were in the Pacific that managed to go to um, get into Brazil, mm. and so and so. I think climate change, um, urbanisation, um, all those sort of factors now are thrown into the mix, along with just us evolving with viruses mm. or with mm. infectious disease. Now let's just go back to immunology in general for for a moment before before we finish up. Um, it seems to me as though the sort of work that you and, and you know, Dr. Laura and others are involved with here, it spans three key areas. And we often don't hear them described this way, but you've got all the stuff around viruses and so forth, which you work on. Then you've got all the new work around immunotherapy, especially in cancer. Then you've also got the work around people's immune systems and autoimmune and, and the diseases of the immune system itself. I mean, this seems to be like a new playground for all of you that's just exploding at the moment. <laughs> I, I mean, we love that, don't yeah, we, Dr. Dr. Laura? But, you know, to be fair, there's, there's, there's a lot of money behind things like cancer. And, I mean, is this changing the way you're doing your work? Because it seems as though it's a lot broader scope now than there was maybe 20 years ago. Yeah, people, you know, the, the word you know, multidisciplinary research teams has been around for a while. Yeah, yeah. But I think this is what I think. I think in science, um, a lot of big breakthroughs in one area can have a huge impact in the other area. So immunology is a very um, interesting and fundamental um, discipline that kind of spans all of those things that you talk about: infections, mm. cancer, autoimmunity. Um, 
because it's the fundamental way that we deal with things that are foreign. So I think, if anything, it's an incredibly exciting area in therapeutics, but it's a reminder that if we don't continue to invest in that fundamental Mm. research asking why is this immune-fighting cell in one part of the body, not in another, exactly the sort of work that Laura does we won't have the tools to then translate into new treatments. And the immunotherapy story is a great one because just in the last few years, we've got these new tools to treat cancer. But it all stems from a basic understanding of how T-cells, a part mm. of the immune system, recognise cancer, which is actually work that Peter Doherty did, got the Nobel Prize 20 years ago, yeah. but he did it in the 70s. So it just takes you, shows you that why... Um, a lot of, I think, yesterday was the March for Science, by the way. I don't know if you mm. talked about that. You know, why that um, investment in science um, and discovery science is so important because you just do not know where those discoveries are going to lead to us in making a huge impact in yeah. in human health. Yeah. yeah, exactly Sharon's point. It shows why it's so important to fund the basic research, the fundamental research in how these immune cells work. Say, if you understand how immune cells such as a T-cell work, that feeds into immunotherapy, it feeds into curing autoimmunity, it feeds into curing... Um, you know, you know, viral mm. uh, diseases, for example. So, yeah. I, I, I mean, I read this piece of uh, research the other day that I mean, uh, if you'd asked me 15 years ago when I was an active physicist oh, about immune system, I was it boring? But I totally, <laughs> totally converted, totally converted. And it was, I would say, complicated. <laughs> it's very but complicated. It is, it's the most extraordinary complex system that that we probably are aware of. I think. And I was reading this piece about the possibility that. Um, celiac disease, or at least this test they'd done in mice, was initiated by exposure to a certain virus, or I think it was a virus. And so the idea that you could actually, if someone had the genetic susceptibility to getting celiac disease, you could vaccinate them against yeah, being exposed. Yeah. I mean, this is That's really That's an Australian cool discovery, stuff. by yeah, the way. A- amazing it's been stuff. let out of Melbourne, yeah. So, really amazing stuff. Mm. So I think, um, so the Day of Immunology, uh, there's a number of events. People can look them up, I assume. I mean, there's heaps of activity on social media, I saw. Yeah, there's a number of events. There's um, the event that we talked about at the Doty. There's also a vaccination cafe mm. tomorrow night, people to get their flu vaccines. Yep. Um, Laura might know of others. So the vaccination cafe is a really great one that's going to be held in the Melbourne Town Hall and people can not only come and get their flu shot but also interact with a lot of immunologists that will be going to that event and, you know, discuss what they're doing and also the public lecture on the Friday. Mm. And we have our Lord Mayor, Robert Doyle, getting his vaccine in public. (laughs) Oh, good work. Good leadership, showing everyone what they should be doing. Well, I think it's a good opportunity for people to come and, as you say, speak to immunologists immunologists as well because there's a lot of people who are a bit unsure and there's a lot of misinformation out there on the web that's not helpful and i think if you can actually speak to some of these people and get their views as to why they think it's positive that's worthwhile if you're a little on the fence um it's not about judgment it's about information so sharon thanks so much for coming and chatting to us again um no doubt we'll we'll see you again in two years yeah two years i'll be back with (laughs) the cure next time with the cure yeah well geez you heard it here first folks (laughs) Cure for HIV in two years. No, don't say that. That's (laughs) awesome. With an update of where we are towards a cure. You've got to give give her a lot of money for these things. (laughs) For the research. And the basic immunology. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Professor Sharon Lewin, who's the director of the Doherty Institute, uh, thanks so much. We'll chat to you again soon. Okay, thank you. You're listening to 3 to folks. We're going to take a break for some music, and we'll be back in a moment with our third uh, guest, who's going to make you feel real guilty about the fact that you're wearing jeans. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR FM in Melbourne, Australia. You are listening to 3RRR 
In the studio with us now is Dr. Chris Huron. He is from Deakin University. Chris, welcome to Triple R. Thank you. Now, you've come up from Geelong, or a little bit past Geelong, actually, yes. um, to tell us why, basically, our denim jeans are destroying the planet. Is this, are you wearing <laughs> denim jeans? Well, if you look at it, denim is one of the most worn products. Mm, like yeah. If you look in the studio where we are at the moment, probably 50%. 100%. But most of the time you'll find 50 to 70% of people wear denim. Yep. Uh, and so denim has quite a large consumption of, of energy and water and, and chemicals. Mm-hmm. So um, we're trying with our work to try and make that a little bit better. Yeah. So if, if we have a – I'm not sure what comparator you can use here, but – there's obviously a lot of denim produced and sold year-round. I mean, how does that compare to, I don't know, what do you guys compare it to in terms of its impact? We sort of, when we started to look at what we're doing, we, we picked on denim first because of its larger impact. Mm-hmm. It, it has such a huge water consumption when you do colouration of it, and it, it, um, it and it's so widely worn, so it was easier to pick on it than to pick on sure. wool T-shirts, for right. instance, because <laughs> very few people wear them, so... Yeah. Uh, just for the fabrically uneducated of us, uh, <laughs> denim is cotton? So denim is cotton, and when they colour denim, they use up to two, well, actually more than 200 litres per kilogram. So if you, you look, a pair of denim jeans generally has about 200 litres of water just in its coloration. And um, to all of the, the videos you see of, of rivers of blue and things like that, mm. a lot of them tend to be related to denim. Right. Um, and so uh, there's people in China that can tell you what the latest fashion colours are because they look at the river flowing past their house and they know what the latest right? fashion is going to be. God, that's so, extraordinary. And so it's getting better, but it's still a, a major problem. And, and we've got such a thirst for denim. It's a, a designer a product now. Um, people bash it and rip it and tear it and embellish it and do all sorts of things. But it still comes back to most of the dyeing is done in the traditional way and it's quite polluting. Yeah, I mean, Ray, he was talking to me before about trying to get denim suits. He's, he just can't yeah, get enough yeah. denim. Because <laughs> um, the jackets, you know. Yeah, the jackets. For, for larger scientists. Yeah. Um. <laughs> scientists in general should all be wearing white denim. That could be the new <laughs> colour of rivers in China. Um, oh, denim lab coats. Denim lab coats. There you go. Yeah. Now, there's an industry we haven't yeah. <laughs> thought of. Okay, investors, call after the show. Um, so in, in terms of what, what you guys are doing, I mean, how are you changing this production? Because, I mean, this is something that's been around for a long time, the way this is all produced. Correct. So what we're trying to do uh, is we take a pair of denim jeans, we take off the buttons and zips and so forth, yep. and then we turn the entire pair of jeans into a particle. And so that particle then can be used using standard printing, so screen printing or, or rotary printing, to recolour the, 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 the clothing. Now, okay. that's very different to the dyeing process because the dyeing uses lots of water and chemicals. Where printing, you put your coat of print on, you wash it once, and it's ready. So we're able to reuse that colour as well as recycle the pants, which would normally go to landfill. Right. So so basically you're just using the you know standards of the chemical printing techniques to yep. instead of dying and and what is the comparator in terms you said they do have to be washed afterwards so you said 200 liters before per pair of jeans i mean what are we talking about using printing techniques uh four to ten liters per pair of jeans oh wow that's a i'm trying to do the math was there one one in 40 yes something like that yes so one, that's one a, in 20 one in 40 yeah. yeah that's 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 a lot um and what about the sort of resilience is it still there i mean because we know denim i mean it fades i mean 
God, the, the people doing this must laugh that people actually want to buy them faded. So they dye them, then fade them? Is that well, well, denim's actually quite a clever dyeing process. You actually dye only the outside fibres in the yarn. The okay. inside of the yarn's not dyed. And so when you rub on it, um, you very slowly rub the dye off over time, and that's what the white of the underneath of the yarn shows through, and that's what you get this effect with. And so with printing, you'll get the same sort of thing. If you don't bind that printed ink to it as well when you rub on it, a bit will rub off and you'll get mm. that, that same effect. But uh, you're right, most denim is actually dyed to a really deep shade and then it's washed in washing machines with stones and yeah. I've seen people with sandblasters sandblasting it in factories <laughs> to get that effect. Wow. Angle grinders, you, you name it. They, yep. they, everyone's got this new artistic design that they're going to do. But, but with printing, I mean... Just, you know, my vague knowledge of how printers work means you could print any pattern of Correct. any colour, of any type, of any complexity onto these jeans anywhere on the jeans you want. And, and that's one of the things that this will actually create a new fashion in the fact that you'll have a totally different choice to what that they can do. They can print that stone wash effect mm. rather than going through a whole heap of washing processes. And presumably you could take your jeans back and reprinted later, right? Yes. If they wear out. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But it, it's using all of the material so it doesn't go to land waste the, mm. the the dyes they use in printing in dyeing denim are actually quite toxic if you put yeah. that into the ground they then leach into the ground as as the garment breaks down so yeah. capturing them is also quite important yeah so so as a process this is pretty exciting but do you do you have any benchmarks in i know you've got a water benchmark um but in some of the places where it's manufactured where water isn't seen as a cost and we're, we're, although it's a huge difference there, but there's, so there's reduced water, reduced toxicity, recycling of, of the dyes. Do you have anything on either a CO2 emission or a, a cost potential? Cause that for companies to want to buy this, I'm hearing things that would be financially beneficial too, particularly in recycling the dye, um, and using less dye and, and water handling as an energy cost. So where does this sit in more of a, either a cost basis or a life cycle analysis? For the, the, the process you're proposing. So it, it, energy-wise, it's quite interesting. If you look, over 50% of energy goes into colouring the garments we wear in the cost in the energy of producing a garment. In some cases, it can be up to 80%. Uh, and this is a T-shirt, this is a pair of jeans, it's any item of clothing you've got. The most energy goes into colouring that. Okay. And so if you go down the printing path, your energy drops quite significantly. So we haven't done energy balances to see how much energy we're going to save there, but we know there will be energy savings. There'll be wastewater savings because we no longer will have the wastewater going down the drain. We're not going to need as much water to do the, the washing. And the dyeing process uses a lot of quite toxic chemicals. It uses sodium dithionite. Mm-hmm. Um, it uses uh, sodium hydroxide uh, to, to make the dye the right colour, the right um, structure to put into the cotton. Okay. Mm-hmm. But um, life cycle analysis-wise, we're looking at how do we, we uh, make this um, product chain circular. So you wear your pair of jeans, um, you're in one of the bigger department stores where they buy them back. Um, that then goes to a particle manufacturer. They make the particle, they make the colour, and then it goes back to be used to colour the next pair of denim jeans. Mm. I mean, that sounds fantastic. Right. Uh, you, and you guys have just won uh, one of these Global Challenge Awards over in Europe, which is, I understand is €150,000, and there were five winners out of 2,885 entries. 
That's not, correct. Not bad, Chris. We, we were very, very impressed when we got the telephone call to say that uh, we had got to the top 20, uh, and when we got into the top five, we were really stoked. Yeah. And so it's not only... This is um, the H&M Foundation, which is uh, um, one of the owners of H&M actually takes money out of his own pocket and funds the foundation. Uh, they started the Global Change Awards last year, so this mm-hmm. is only the second year, and um, their aim is to try and improve the fashion industry. Right. And so this, is, for us, this is a great benefit. This work is, is quite young, mm. uh, and all of the training that goes along with this, the accelerator programs that H&M Foundation put on, will enable us to get this into industry so much quicker than mm. it might have taken going down the normal path. Oh, look, I, I just think it's great. And it's great to see, uh, I mean, Deakin University, the old CSIRO plant down there, All we have been a, a real leader in terms of wool technology and other things for decades here in, in Melbourne. A lot of people are not aware of that. And it's great to see you guys continuing that wonderful tradition in, in sort of clothing and, and the technology behind it. Good luck with this work. I hope it goes somewhere. I hope we become the, you know, the global gene seller. Wouldn't it be great if Australia was known for jeans, not coal? <laughs> I mean, I know we've got the hills hoist, but come on. You know, it'd be great if we did this. Chris, great work. Thanks for coming in. Good to talk to you. Good to talk to you too. Dr. Chris Huron is from Deakin University working on some amazing stuff down there in terms of fabrics. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR FM in Melbourne, Australia. Uh, you are listening to Triple R. Jeez, it's been a big week in science. Actually, I didn't think it was, but you guys are telling me. You two, are, Laura, Laura, you and Lauren, I'm going to look at you. And get <laughs> which right. one's yeah, Laura's on my left, Lauren's on my right. Uh, you, you were telling me you're excited about all the news, so why don't we start with you, Laura, since yeah, you were so excited. There was so much in the news this week. Really? So um, something that actually kind of follows kind of Sharon's uh, theme of immunology, which I kind of thought was really exciting, massive paper that came out in Immunity, which is one of the most prestigious immunology journals out there, was um, that frog mucus may hold a new treatment for influenza. So people have been using frog stuff for um, photovoltaic cells, so organic photovoltaic cells, for many years. Andrew Holmes, I think, was the leader of that work. Frogs have got good stuff. Uh, I'm just reminded of the Homer Simpson's quote. I'm not not licking frogs. <laughs> yeah. um, <laughs> That's right. Yeah, so actually, I mean, it's it's been shown over many years that sort of there are compounds in frog skin which have kind of been hailed as, you know, can there be compounds in frog skin that can cure HIV? It's got antibacterial properties, but actually none of them have actually gone through to clinical trials because a lot of the compounds in frog skin actually are toxic to humans. So mm. that hasn't worked out. But this study, um, you know, seems to be quite promising. So they, um, they studied compounds in mucus from a new species of frog from South India, and they isolated 32 peptides out of the mucus. And actually, it's really cool how they get the mucus from frogs. I loved this. They take frogs and they just give them mild electroshock, and then they kind of just wash off the back of the frog with water. I thought you were going to say mild cold. Just a little, a little shock, and then they release <laughs> the frogs back into the wild. So okay. they're just, well, that's um, nice. Yeah, that's which right. is nice. So no frogs were harmed in the study. Well, they were shocked. They were. <laughs> they just <laughs> had a mild, a, a mild shock. And C- come yeah. over here for a moment, and I'll show you <laughs> just with this power cable what. Not harmed these. Released back into the world. But anyway, they they studied uh, 32 peptides that they isolated from frog mucus, and there was one (laughs) called uramin, 
And this, um, this peptide was able to, um, under the microscope in the laboratory, you could incubate it with the influenza virus and it could latch on to a hemagglutinin, really important protein on the outer coat that our kind of vir- our vac- flu vaccines target. And this peptide could bind and literally destroy the virus under the mm. microscope. They don't know the mechanism how, but it could destroy it. Now, here's the important point. We know that um, Sharon was telling us how, you know, flu, the flu virus, it's always evolving, it's always changing its proteins, its mutates. That's why we need different vaccines every season. But the, this peptide, it targets a very conserved region on this protein. So this actually doesn't really mutate. So no matter how much the flu virus mutates, this, this region will stay quite similar. And so this peptide will, it actually mm. worked against many, many different strains of the flu. So they tested it against flu from the 1930s to flu that are kind of circulating in our population today. And this peptide was effective against all these different types of wow. influenza. That's Super pretty cool. cool stuff. Super cool. Yeah. So, Okay. Also, just one more thing. They also took the peptide and immunized mice with this, pept- with this peptide, just on its own, challenged the mice, and they could survive the flu. Wow. Super cool. Any flu? Well, it's against the um, H1 type, which is the swine flu, yeah, yeah, H1N1. Yep. Any type of H1N1, it could protect against. But that's a fairly large number of Yes, flus, it is. So, yep. And the ones that we're really worried about. The ones the we're really worried yeah. about. Yeah, so bird flu, I think, is in that exactly. group as well. And yep. yeah, all these ones that we're worried about coming from avian populations. Yeah, I mean, the, lat- the latest um, bird flu in China is a H7, but all, a lot of our pandemics have been by the H1N1. Mm. So. So it's a good one to go up against. Watch this frog. Watch this frog. Mm. All right, Dr. Lauren, what do you got for us? Yes, um, well, I have an interesting uh, new treatment that's coming out. Well, I guess not treatment, but the research to produce this treatment for um, gaps in your skull, face or jaw, you know, from injury or disease. And so typically these gaps can be quite difficult to treat because they're really small, um, especially if they're caused by injury, can be very irregularly shaped. So they'll have really jagged edges and um, can cause the person with these... um, defects a lot of aesthetic distress or you know have they can have functional difficulties and so currently what they do to treat these defects is they'll harvest a bone graft you know from somewhere else in your body so typically mm-hmm. the hip um, but what these researchers in New York and Texas have been doing so some quality American research happening here um, what they've been looking at is using this moldable bone promoting scaffold and so I actually can you say that again uh, moldable, moldable? bone-promoting scaffold. Okay. How so is was, that not silly putty? Yeah. Well, no, essentially, <laughs> so I, was, I was kind of thinking of it as like, you know, those little earplugs that you get um, yeah, uh, yeah. on the planes, and you can you squish them down, you put them in your ear, and they slowly expand. So it, they don't actually look like that, but they're quite small, maybe the size of a 10, 20-cent piece. And they sort of look like a flower. So they've got these sort of little... Um, petals around them. And so what they do is they can, you literally um, uh, expose them to a warm saline solution, so anything greater than like 50 degrees C, and um, you can mold them into any shape that you want. So you can put them in that defect, and then they'll slowly, once they cool down, they'll slowly sort of expand and fill that gap. Um, and then they can promote bone growth from that. And so this this sort of research has been around for a while. So, But what, the, um, what they've been doing that's new is um, putting a new coating on it. So it's called a bioactive polydopamine is the coding that they used, which is really great because it um, helps with the formation of hydroxyapatite, um, which is really important in bone growth. So in addition to sort of covering this defect, you also want to be able to 
um, encourage the bone to grow into that mold. And so um, this coating has been shown to um, help with the formation, as I mentioned, of hydroxyapatite and osteoblast adhesion um, and the growth of the extracellular matrix, which is all really important um, for bone regeneration. And so it's really it's really interesting using this um, new scaffold um, because it is it takes advantage of the body's own healing ability and it's low cost and essentially could be off the shelf. So, you know, sort of one size fits all because it molds to mm. whatever size that you need. Um, however, I guess one of the um, issues with it is that um, there's a if if the defect is you know large enough, then the material um, would need some additional sort of physical support um, in there because obviously it can't cover um, a giant gap um, in your skull. And so yeah, I just I thought that was really a really interesting. Um, uh, follow up to what I'd been talking about last time which, with, with the spinach leaves and the heart tissue growing on that and so mm. yeah, yeah, yeah very exciting research. I mean these things you know coming back to Ray's you know yeah. quip about uh, silly putty but, <laughs> but you think this stuff is around in other industries and it has been around for a long time I mean you know people would know and I'm sure this is probably a brand name but polyfiller type materials mm-hmm. that are used in housing and in construction industries and so forth because they expand, they change, and all all these sorts of, you know, fill the space you're in type uh, methodologies have been around for a long, long time. So, I mean, it's interesting to see it starting to be used in a way that's biologically compatible because, I mean, I wouldn't recommend putting polyfiller. From houses to humans, Yeah, yeah. there's there's a lot of different research. I mean, um, in, you know, the oil industry and how how they they look at how oil flows through pipes and all of that Mm. research that goes into that, they've been collaborating with researchers um, at hospitals who model, you know, blood flow through the heart. And so I think it's really something, yeah, that needs to happen more often. It's Mm. this sort of collaboration. Maybe not using the same materials, but something that's a little more biocompatible would be good. Yeah. Um, yeah, cool yeah. stuff. Dr. Ray? Dr. Shane, uh, I have a, a, a report on the Gobleki Tempe, which is a, uh ancient archaeological site in southern Turkey mm-hmm. uh, that they think was one of the world's oldest, say, uh, astronomical si- uh, observatories. And what the these it's been excavated for quite a while now and studied, and it has... What's interesting about the place is it's full of pillars with 2D and low-relief carvings on it, as well as the pillars themselves and the way they're aligned. And so the set of researchers from and the School of Engineering in Edinburgh uh, have used the alignment of the pillars and the sculpture relief carvings themselves, which are constellations, to date the building of the temple, based on the fact that the Earth has a precession over time, because they're t- we're dating back to the 10th century BC. And so based on the Earth's precession and where the pillars are aligned and where they think the the constellations were aligned based on the carvings and some computer recognition, they pinpointed the age of the stone to about 10950 BC. So 10,000, mm, mm. kind of 10th, 11th century. That's a long time. Yeah. And, and, and what's fantastic about that is, is not just the fact they use the stars to figure out how old it is. It's consistent with carbon dating, but that's a little hard to get quite as accurate with carbon dating. Is they also pinpointed, they used the sculptures and the relief had things like people with decapitated heads showing a large catastrophic event, which they actually think might have been a, a common impact. So that period of time, there's a debate in the geological record about the possibility of a, a comet breakup and, and some impact on Earth, inducing a mini ice age around that time. And so this is an archaeological record mm. supporting the geological observations. Mm. Mm. But then they used the actual stars and the Earth's precession to date it. 
Yeah, and so this cool. is just such a, a cool collection of, of different parts of science coming together to try to understand more about that geological record. Because there's quite a debate about whether or not this was a, 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 a common event that impacted Earth at that time. And and the the astronomers, they, their title was like decoding the Gobleki Temple Stone. And then it was, then the underside was, what did the fox say? And I went, really? In a scientific article? But in fairness, some of the carvings were of foxes. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, give, give them some credit there, I suppose. Yeah, but, but still. It is super cool stuff. I, I mean, anything that involves the procession of the Earth, which, as I recall, takes 11,000 years. Yeah, so they were kind of... It's kind of cool. I mean, it's it's a great dating mechanism. And, you know, the direction of the pyramids, all sorts of things you can look at that. And it's all, it's all very cool. Now, uh... I got an email from Dr. Jen during the week. She asked me to do something special. Uh, the Garvin Institute um, is basically looking at the moment at doing an Australian-wide survey on personal uh, genomics. So this is basically they're trying to understand how Australians view genomic testing and what personal genomics sort of means. And, you know, I think this is a pretty useful thing. I mean, this is coming into our lives and mm-hmm. you'll soon you'll be able to – well, you already can. I think there's a couple of commercial companies where you send off some spit in a bottle and they send back your genome information, which uh, may or may not be helpful to you. Um, but the government is doing a, a bit of a run on this, a survey, and if you want to have a look, it's at genios.net.au. So that's G-E-N-I-O-Z dot net dot A-U. Um, but I'm sure if you do a search on the Garvin Institute and genetic testing, you will find their survey. So it might be worth having a look at that. Now, I uh, I was also reading uh, something that, um, you know, CERN, the, the Large Hadron Collider, um, big particle smasher, uh, still doing a lot of work, mind you. And it's amazing when you read about the work they're doing, often you'll read something in the news that's recent and you realise it's from data they collected in 2013. That, my biological friends, is big data. <laughs> Just to put that out there, stuff that's taken four years to analyze. Um, but there's some hints at the moment at the possibility of a new particle because one of the things that CERN does is it smashes particles together and when they break apart, they decay into smaller pieces. And these decays occur at certain angles, so bits fly off at certain angles and they all have certain energies and certain masses. And there's one particular decay at the moment that they're looking at that should be 50% this, 50% that. But that's not quite what they're seeing in some of the experiments. Hmm. And that's weird. And in addition to that, the angles that the things fly off at, not quite right for what it should be. Now, they have to correlate these experiments many, many times. And if you think, you know, back a few years ago when the Higgs boson was demonstrated, they didn't find one. They actually found probably billions, actually, but, you know, a very large number for the statistics to be acceptable to the international particle physics community. So, again, with this group, at the moment, there's a lot of people saying, hey, early days. Yeah. <laughs> Do it a few more times, please. Um, so it's got a lot, a lot, uh, a lot to come. But this is interesting because we're still learning more and more about new particles. And I should say that these uh, weird results were before the Large Hadron Collider was up to the current energy levels it's running at. So it was when it was running in kind of you know half power mode. So oh, wow. yeah, so you know the the new stuff coming out will be even more interesting. So there's there's a lot there. But it's um, I'm not even going to mention the types of particles because it's very <laughs> early days. But you know you've got to watch your space with those guys because there's a lot of cool stuff coming on. Uh, Dr. Lauren, thanks for coming in. 
Good to be here. Dr. Laura, good to see you as well. And you must be excited about the day of immunology Very coming excited. up. Very excited. Thank yeah, you, Shane. Get excited about that. Dr. Ray, you can be excited about immunology too. If you I want. can, actually. <laughs> One day. Why not? I got the flu shot and everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah I got my book in a couple of weeks. I'm terrified. No, it's, uh, no, 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 no. Because they try and give you lollies. No, they want to eat that stuff. Anyway, uh, I'm Dr. Shane. We're going to chat again in just a week's time, folks. Have a great Sunday. You're listening to 3 Triple R. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.